Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 391. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 391 you're listening to. My guest today is, of course, Steve Rosenthal. This is part two of our conversation with the Grammy-winning producer, studio owner, and archivist who has worked on projects by Woody Guthrie, Les Paul, Blondie, David Bowie, Foo Fighters, and Errol Garner. And he, of course, is well-known because... He is the man behind the fame studio in New York, The Magic Shop, which sadly closed in 2016, but he has new things ahead, which we will talk about here in part two. Looking forward to having him back, Steve Rosenthal, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about what happens when the work dries up. So you've been working through various projects and work has been coming in steadily for a while and you kind of feel a sense of contentment because you feel secure in the work that you're doing. Well, what do you do when the work dries up? What do you do when you get to the end of a gig and there's no more gigs on the horizon? There's no emails even hinting at a potential new project and you're starting to get a little panicked. Well, first of all, we want to prevent that from happening. And I think that's important no matter the discipline of audio you're in, but also no matter your, we'll just say, I hate to say it, but level, you know, are you, you know, in Los Angeles working on major label records or are you in Arkansas working on independent records? Doesn't matter. What we're trying to avoid is the work stoppage, right? So before we address what do you do when that happens, let's try to address what you should be doing to prevent that from happening. So the way I see this is our audio careers are like a vehicle that is in constant motion and it cannot run out of fuel because if it does, it's going to be stuck on the side of the road going nowhere. So the trick is, is keeping the vehicle on the road at all times, constantly moving. I'm digging into the analogy even deeper here. If you need to pull off for a little bit and take a rest, that's fine. But in general, we want to keep the vehicle on the road meaning our careers. So the question is, is what is the fuel that keeps the vehicle on the road or the career in motion? The fuel can be a number of things. Let's think about it for a sec. Um, networking is a form of fuel. What do we mean when we're going out and we're networking? We are having conversations with groups of people or individuals that obviously has relevance to our careers. And it might be discussion of symbiotic relationships between the people involved in that networking. It might be about seeking advice or giving advice. It's essentially socializing with kind of a business mindset. So where do we do this networking? Well, it can be done in a number of places. It can be done at clubs, at trade shows, at coffee shops, at parties, at sponsored events, at uh, studios, on film sets, uh, you know, any number of places. Networking certainly is a fuel to help the car stay on the road. 
And while fuel, of course, is important, maintenance is also important, right? We can't have the car on the road if we don't take care of it. So we not only have to give it fuel, but we have to make sure that the engine is in good shape and that we take care of that. So what are the things that we have to take care of? Well, we have to take care of our existing client base. We have to make sure that they have what they need when they need it. And whether you have one, five, a hundred clients, doesn't matter. You have to come up with a system of taking care of them, taking care of their needs. Self-promotion is another aspect of this. And I guess that would fall under the fuel category because it helps fuel awareness. So as far as it applies to the analogy and the car, I don't know, maybe it's driving the car through different neighborhoods, letting people know, hey, I have a car or I have a career, right? I do this. And those neighborhoods in, in our 21st century sense, of course, are social media, which comes to mind naturally. I don't know very many people that advertise in magazines as audio people. I mean, I, I think that there's a few people that have advertised for numerous years in tape op. I've never uh, really seen the value in advertising or paying for advertising for, per se. I think uh, being nimble with social media is pretty important and it's free, right? You know, whether it's LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, whatever your jam is, uh, I think that that is one aspect again of keeping the car on the road. The other aspect of this is driving well, or as it pertains to audio directly, doing good work right? Making sure that the work you do stands up and, it, and people are proud of the projects that you're involved in because of the quality. The other aspect of this is constantly being on the lookout for new work, or in the case of our analogy, exploring new roads, exploring territory you've never explored. In essence, it just means finding new clients to work with. And however that pertains to whatever audio discipline you're in, whatever the method is you think you need to seek work, you need to be doing that. You need to be exploring, constantly checking in with people. If you're an archivist, you know, maybe you need to be calling people up and saying, hey, I, I heard you have a, uh, a basement full of tapes. Uh, how can I be of assistance? Or if you're looking for a new band to work with, you know they're coming to town, reach out proactively and try to meet with them after the show to discuss potential for their new record or when they're gonna, when they were thinking about recording, what, what are their thoughts about it, et cetera, et cetera. However you do it, it's all about just exploration. And you're not always gonna get yeses. It's gonna, you're gonna be turned down a million times. Oh, we already got a person. We're already working with so-and-so. Okay, that's fine, that's gonna happen, but you gotta keep going. You gotta keep looking for new clients because let's bring it back to how this all started. How do we prevent the work from drying up? Well, once again, we gotta keep the car on the road and whatever we need to do to keep the car on the road, whether it's fuel, driving well, maintenance, exploring new new areas. Those are the things that you gotta be doing. Because if you just stop and keep driving and let the car run out of gas and, and fall asleep at the wheel, whatever, you're gonna be stuck on the side of the road with no work. Okay, now what, what do we do if we run out of work, period? It's just dried up. Well, maybe that's the time to consider my other favorite topic, diversification. So that if work does dry up in one area, you have other income streams they're gonna, that are gonna help you get that car back on the road a lot quicker. And if you don't, well, then you're gonna have to do all the things that we said. You're gonna have to fill the car up with gas. You're gonna have to do some maintenance and you're gonna have to start doing all these things from scratch. 
at the end of the day, you cannot expect that just because you own audio gear, people are gonna show up at your door. It's not a magic beacon. It doesn't just you know advertise for you, hey, audio is happening here, come on over here. That is up to you. You have to get out there and bust your ass to make sure that people know that you are available and you need to proactively reach out. It's not just a one-way thing, it's a two-way thing. Make yourself available, but also try to get out there and seek conversations with those who you wanna work with. Because look, at the end of the day, it's all about communication with other human beings. So that's it. Keep the car on the road. Remember everything I said here. Don't fall asleep at the wheel and just think, oh, the work's gonna continue to come in. Nobody's gonna fill up your car and maintain it for you. That's up to you. Appreciate you tolerating my car analogy here, but I think it's, it's very representational of what it is that we're all trying to do here. We're trying to keep the vehicle on the road, moving forward and going places. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So 
head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we could sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Steve Rosenthal, part two, here on the Working Class Audio podcast. For the audience, just a little history. So the Magic Shop had existed for, what, 28 years? Closed in 2016? Yeah. We could probably spend literally two more episodes just talking about all 28 years. So let's try to hit some of the highlights. Obviously, you had a great clientele. Well, it, it, I grew one. Sorry. I mean, yeah, you grew a so, great clientele. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really difficult in the beginning, Matt, because people thought I was mad because I built a console around this this crazy looking Neve thing that looked like Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm. And most people were trying to throw their consoles out, and everything was MIDI, and I built a live room because people were starting to use drum machines, and it was basically an era in music where it was built around technology and and excuse me creation of midi uh, music through midi so the idea of building a recording studio that people could play and people thought i was daft the other thing is everybody that came in the room was a sound designer i put some treatments up in the room but everybody that came in the room was like no it needs to be deader it needs to be liver they were everybody was a, a freaking expert and i had my clients but it was really hard to find people who wanted to use the console and use the studio. So in the beginning, it was it was difficult. I had a a really nice couple from this band, the Grace Pool and Warners. They were the first major label band to come to the Magic Shop. They got it completely. You know, at that point, I had like a half an hour babble about why I thought this was a good idea as a way to make a record. And they just walked in. They were like, okay, we want to come here for six weeks. Soon after that, Lou came, Lou Reed came with Roger Moutinot, and then Suzanne Vega came. I worked with her. And then Ed Stacian brought the Ramones. I'll put a link to Ed's interview uh, in the show notes as well. Ed, is, Ed has been on the show and, and a pleasure to talk with and, and hear My about God. his history. He's, he's such a great guy. Yeah. And so then Ed came. And after those three records, after Lou, Suzanne, and Ed came, then I had a business. And then people were like, oh, okay, I guess you can make a record in this place. And I have to say that Lou and Roger Mutno were really amazing early adopters because they believed in the studio and in the way that you could make records there. Obviously, Lou could have gone anywhere at that point, Mm -hmm. right, to make a record. Can you give the audience a little perspective here? Because, you know, you're saying they could make a record here based on the methods that you were prescribing. Give us perspective on how people were making records at that moment. So in, in the late 80s and, you know, the world before Nirvana, right, is the music business was, was you know, boy bands and, and uh, squeaky girl groups. And it was really music. um a lot of the music was made uh, with drum machines and sequencers. And the only thing that people would do was sing. They would sing. But there wasn't a lot of played records that were, that were very popular. Um, and so I built, actually, there's no, I don't think there's any video of it or anything. Because, you know, it's before cell phones. But I built 
a production desk in the big control room. And on the sides, there were these two wings that came up out of the table and they, they came up like a bond movie and they were stuffed with synthesizers. Hmm. And I had tons of great MIDI gear and I was really good at it because I had to make a living as an engineer. So I had to learn how to do it all. Um, and I had lots of MIDI gear. So if people wanted to do that and I bought, look, oh I think I bought an SE 30, you know, with us, with, uh, what was an early software before pro tools? Well, Cubase in its early form. Um, yeah, I think it was even earlier than that. Sorry. I, is it a notator? Nah, that was too sophisticated. Uh. There's something really <laughs> early and crude. And I bought an SE 30 and it cost me $3,600. A Mac the, SE 30. Yeah. Mac yeah, yeah. SE 30. It cost me $3,600. I'll never forget that. And, um, so yeah, I did a lot of records that way, but clearly my heart was into this idea of having people go into the room and play music mm -hmm. and it just, you know, and I don't know luck or whatever it is. I mean, uh, after the world, after Dave and, and Nirvana made that record was completely different because they made a record playing music on a vintage Neve console in a live room. Yeah. So this sort of weird idea that I had became ridiculously timely. And so all the major labels who were like, had been looking at me like, why the fuck would I want to come to this place? Then all of a sudden they were running out to try to sign rock bands and bands with, you know, flannel shirts and <laughs> <laughs> who played loud drums in a live room. You know, I, listen, just one more thing. I told Dave this, right? Right. And, and because my business would be, would not have really made it, I don't think, if not for what happened in his life. It really had a, prof and I obviously didn't meet him until 2012 or whatever it was, but it, what happened in his life. Was that for the Sonic Highways thing? Yeah, I met him when, when he wanted to do Sonic Highways. But, it, you know, he, he, what happened in his life had had a profound effect on my life already. Um, and that's why, uh, and, and that opened up a, a, a six, eight year period. I don't even know how long it was where the place was just a blast and just really, really busy and um, huh. an, an amazing staff, you know? So I, I've been so lucky to have an amazing had, I don't have any more had an amazing staff um, of engineers and, and Juan Garcia and Rato, who was early, and Tom and Kabir, Herman and Chris Shirtliff, and you know, just so many amazing and Jessica and Warren. Um, I know I'm putting a big gap in years. It's a long time. Oh, it's a it's a huge chunk of time though, and 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 quite a run for a studio. I mean, 28 years. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, so much of it is because of the staff, you know, uh, it's like the staff was amazing and they worked so hard and they believed in the vision of the place and they cared about it. And I had two techs, Matt Wells and Nat Priest who were in the basement for many, many years who helped keep the place going. 
you know, uh, they were, they're both brilliant texts. They're still around working. Um, a, a lot of it's the staff. I had really great ma- managers over the years, mm-hmm. you know, Liz Montgomery, um, you know, people who came to work and, and, and cared about it, you know, during this really busy period, Ed Douglas was there and Joe Warder was there two really, really great engineers who's, you know, Joe Ward is still an engineer now. Um, it's a famous movie critic, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think so much of it is the staff. You know, so much, and, and when I fucked up and hired the wrong people, uh, it was much, much, much more difficult. So Well, I mean, my conversations with Je- Jessica and Rado pointed me to the fact that well, you say it's the staff. In the end of the day, it's you that that it starts with, and you. If you think about it, you really impacted the lives of a lot of people in a positive way. That's cool. Which is, you know, something to be definitely uh, something to be proud of. But what was your style of working with people? So I was not like an intrusive owner. Um, so I was much more like the laid back dude. Um, in the early days, I would really not go in and uh, bother people while they were working. There are a number of studio owners who like to go in and, you know, get in the face of the clients and whatever. And I was very, very low key. I mean, when Rick Rubin was there, he thought I was the intern. <laughs> I came into the control room and he asked me to get him some coffee. And I said, OK, I'll get you some coffee. And then I think Dave Sardi told him, oh, that's Steve. He's the owner of the studio. And and then Rick was like, oh, I'm really sorry, dude. I was like, it's fine. I don't really give a shit. That doesn't matter to me. I, I like my interns. So I, I was not really like a sort of in-your-face studio owner, right? I was much more like, I have an amazing staff. I trust them to take care of the clients. If something goes wrong, they can come downstairs and we can sort of sort it out. We can figure out what's wrong. There's always stuff going wrong, especially in a studio based on a console that was 20, 30 years old, right? There's always shit going wrong. Um, so we've, we would have to figure stuff out, but you know, I, I tried to tell them, don't panic, we'll figure it out, try to keep a low-key atmosphere, and, and you know, let people um, feel free to create because otherwise the record's going to suck, right? The artists have to be in an atmosphere that they feel free to be whoever it is that they want to be. And so that's sort of, you know, that's not technical, but it's a really big part, I think, of of why people like to go to certain studios. Um, Anyway, that was a a big part of my thinking about it. And then as far as, I mean, I'm, this is a big ask. I mean, 28 years to, to ask you to recall what are the, the there was a, mi- a million key highlights, I'm sure. But what are some of the, if you could think of three lessons that you learned out of running a studio that you could pass on to somebody f- today who is interested in running a studio, what would you tell them? Well, hmm, yeah. The first thing is buy your space. So you don't end up getting fucked like I did. Um, 
So if, if there's any way you can buy the space that you're building in, you should buy it. The, the second thing is, is stick to the vision that you have for your place, even if it's not uh, a vision that's popular at the moment, because time may bear you out in some way that you, in some unexpected way. And three is surround yourself with people who care about their jobs and who are invested in the work that they're doing and invested creatively. I'm not talking about invested financially because we all know the music business is terrible at making money. In. Only the people who are really super successful have money in the music business. Yeah. So find people who are invested creatively in the work that you're doing um, and who care about going there each day. Um, and it's okay if, they're, if they have problems and they're, they have issues. That's not the thing. If they're passionate about doing the work. I've had lots of amazing staff people at the magic shop who personally had real issues and demons, but were able to sort of get through it hmm. and work and learn how to work and learn how to create. So those are the the three things that I think about. That helpful or was that bad? No, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I think that piece of advice of own the building. Yeah. That's unobtainable to some, but and they and they discount it right off the bat and they just go for the easy, well, let's just rent the place. Right. And that's as as you know, regardless of longevity, it eventually it will come to bite you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the main lessons of 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 my life and owning the studio. It's a hard lesson. Um, and if people want to learn more about the studio, obviously they could watch Sonic Highways because, you know, Dave did an amazing job of profiling the studio. Yeah, I'll put a link to the show notes uh, for, I'll find which episode it was on. Yeah, and I mean, he the... did a fabulous job. He's, he's a really great person. And, and um, yeah, I kept telling him, you sure you don't want to do Electric Lady? And he was like, fuck no. <laughs> I was like, okay. So the the rent going up obviously is what put the nail in the coffin. No, it wasn't it wasn't the rent. It was that they kicked me out because they want so well of course, like I'm under an NDA, right? For a lot of things about the magic shop. Like say I can't talk about David Bowie, right? because of my NDA about David Bowie. I could tell you a couple of things, but basically I'm not allowed to talk about it. Um, and I'm under an NDA about the dissolution of the magic shop. So I can't tell you really uh, what happened, but it was not really about the increase in the rent. It was really about being kicked out mm. and all the things that I did to try to stay. And not only me, all the things that Dave did as well to try to help me stay. Mm. Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know about these NDAs. Well, that obviously that was a, a, a tough time to see the end of that. But I want to ask you about another potentially tough time. How did 9-11 affect the studio? Yeah, 9-11 was really devastating both for the studio and for the living room, which was the club that we had because mm -hmm. we were below Houston. The magic shop was really only about I don't know, 16 blocks or so from where the towers were. So it was really difficult. And someone who was in my building was in one of the towers. Um, you know, this is, 
it's a very complicated thing to talk about, but it was my staff that really uh, pointed the way forward. I, when we could all go back down there, because there were, I forgot how many weeks it was before they would let me in. Um, and then eventually the only way I could get below Houston Street was if I had my lease, I had to show my lease and, and my license. And so a Con Ed bill or something, I forgot what it was. So um, it was really hard. And I, I came and at some point we all got together in the studio and I asked my staff if they thought we should go on. Because hmm. it wasn't, it, I mean, it became really clear that people were not going to come to New York City. And I had a big foundational part of the business was clients from California, London, Japan, Florida, wherever. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was, became very clear that that wasn't going to happen anymore or for the next couple of years. So I asked my staff what they thought and they, um, they wanted to continue. So uh, I got, I said, okay. So I took a nine 11 loan out, uh, which I'm still paying back. <laughs> oh my uh, so i i took a 9-11 loan out uh got some money and reconfigured uh the studio and the profile of the studio to be much more local hmm. and for the next couple of years almost all of the sessions that but took very um, a bunch of months for, for anybody to come to the studio. I forgot how long it was, but for the next few months, um, and for, excuse me, for the next year and a half or so, it was basically like running a, a corner deli, only it was a corner recording studio. The neighborhood studio. It was like a neighborhood studio. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, I had a, the living room, the way that the, the amazing artists at the living room and the and the, and the studio there was a synergy there and so lots of the artists who played at the club would want to come to the studio so um it took a real long time for a major label band to come uh john elasia brought oar mm. they were the first band to come to the studio it took them many 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 months after 9-11 so yeah, it was hard. It was hard to figure out how to go on, but you know, we stayed. Uh, Jennifer and I, we stayed. A lot of people left, but we stayed in New York City and we dug in deeper, if anything. You know, we built another club on Ludlow Street, 2004, I think. And I kept expanding the magic shop down in the basement, turning the basement into restoration and mastering rooms. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. 
So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. So uh, I'd like to talk about that. Uh, At the end of a studio run like the Magic Shop, obviously a lot of your life has been spent in that space. A lot of your identity is tied up in that. Did you go through any kind of identity crisis as you were transitioning to, you know, primarily focusing on restoration after the end of the Magic Shop? I was completely devastated, depressed, crazy. we lost both of our businesses within three months. The living room closed as well after 17 years. And I closed after 28 years. It was a really dark, fucking bad time. Yeah. And uh, I have kids. I've, and uh, sorry, my kids had to live through that. It was bad. Yeah. And both my wife, Jennifer, and I have had to, you know, remake our lives and figure out another way to make a living and, and another way to be happy. And uh, yeah, it was, fu- it's fucked up. It was, it's still fucked up. I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that really goes away. I, I don't know how to say this. It, it doesn't go away. You know? Um, so yeah, the answer is we had to figure something out and, and what, and I, I financially was totally fucked. Um, I couldn't pay a lot of the, uh, people I owed money to and I couldn't uh, I lost all my gear I had leveraged all my gear and I lost all my gear so yeah so it was, it, we were fucked so uh, it's funny though um, uh, Matt Boynton and Eric who were two guys working at the magic shop towards the end Matt had been working there as a young kid and then went away and built his own studio in Brooklyn called Vacation Island, which was a really great, cool joint. He had lost his studio, and then he had come back to the Magic Shop for the last six months. I don't even remember. But Matt and Eric were really great, and they were like, I was completely depressed, and I didn't want to do anything. And I was like, well, I'm fucked. I'm old. I'm done. And they're like, no, 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 you got to figure, we'll, we'll find you someplace. So they literally found this place in Dumbo, where I am now, and have been for the last six years, um, they found a place that I could go to, and and set up uh, 
uh, a restoration and archiving and preservation studio. But I have to tell you, I mean, I was so fucking depressed. If, if not for the two of them, I don't really know really how that would have gone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we moved, I've moved those that got to go to the studio, to the magic shop. There were two parts to it. So upstairs there were, there was the place where people were making new records, you know, Bowie, Coldplay, Nora Jones, whoever was upstairs making new records. And downstairs I was working on old stuff, right? Because I sort of stopped engineering major label records in the late nineties. I sort of got bored. I had done a bunch of major label records in a row um, and got completely bored and burnt out. And, and around that time is when I met Alan Lomax and Matt Barton, uh, who hired me to work on the Alan Lomax collection. Hmm. Matt is now the curator of sound for the Library of Congress. It's a really wonderful, amazing guy. He knows so much about music. It's overwhelming. So uh, my focus as, as a, as a uh, producer really switched gears. And I soon started working on old and vintage recordings as opposed to going upstairs and working on new stuff. Sometimes the worlds collided. Yeah. In the early O's, I did a bunch of work uh, for Sony on Elvis, um, Elvis Presley. So I got to mix a whole bunch of Elvis stuff with Kabir and Ted Young. Another Ted Young. Sorry, I didn't mention Ted, another really great magic shop engineer who's out now making great records. Um, we, uh, we did a whole bunch of Elvis together you know, with the original 16 track, two inches, and we would mix them upstairs. And um, so sometimes the worlds collided and I would get to go upstairs and work on some vintage mixing. But most of the time I was doing these preservation and archiving projects down in the basement. So I worked on the Lomax. I worked on the Stones collection with Terry Landy. Wow. Worked on Sam Cooke. Those were sort of all all in the O's. And so when it came time to try to figure out a way how to continue, I decided I would take that part of my business and try to continue with it. So since 2016, I've had this sort of small but effective preservation suite. It's like two rooms I have in Dumbo where I work on people's archival materials. And um, I'm happy to say that um, it's, I've been able to work on a bunch of cool stuff right now. I'm working on the Matador records archive with uh, a new young engineer who Shane, who uh, has been working with me now for about a year and a half. He comes from the university of Hartford and he's really great. He's obviously going to have a great career. Alex Sloan was another engineer who helped me deal with the transition between the two places so, yeah, so I've been working on some fun stuff. I've been working on the Les Paul Foundation stuff. I've been uh, working with Blondie now mm. the last six years. Blondie made their last record upstairs at the Magic Shop. They made Pollinator upstairs. And one day, Chris came downstairs. I was in the basement working on, a, I think, a Dave Van Ronk project. And he came downstairs and he literally said, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I said, I'm working on Dave Van Rock. He said, why the fuck are you doing that? And I said, well, that's kind of what I do. You know, I work on archival material. And he said, I have a bunch of tapes in my barn up in Woodstock. You want to come and look? So suffice to say, it's, it, Jessica was involved in, in that. And um, 
we've been putting out um, some music and we're going to be putting out some more music from the Blondie archive. Hold on. I'll show you what just came out on this record store day. So this is something that I produced with Ken Shipley from Numero and Tommy Manzi, who's the band's manager. Wow. So this is an EP of Sunday Girl, and it has a newly mastered version of Sunday Girl, which Michael Graves did, the French version, and then uh, the demo, which we found in the archive, and an unreleased live version of Sunday Girl. That's that's fantastic. So and this just came out. Was it, when was Record Store Day? A couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So um, that's kind of what I, I, I the kind of work that I've been focusing on. Is, pay, is helping people to organize their collections. Um, Laurie Anderson hired me to work on her archive, which is astonishing, as you might imagine. And then she hired me to work on Lou's, Lou Reed's archive, which is now at the New York Public Library. So Lou's stuff is, and he had an amazing personal collection, 700 reels, tons of cassettes, and... Uh, Lou's collection is listenable. You know, you can go to the library and hear it if you want. Um, I was really happy to work on that because uh, I, I, in the 90s, I did a record with Lou. I engineered a record with Lou at the Magic Shop. So it was kind of coming full circle. So I was really happy to do that. Do you feel like you've reinvented yourself? Well, I had no choice. I have kids. So I can't sit around, Yeah, you know, and think about 1988, I, I really need to figure out how I'm going to, you know, go forward. You know, I got three kids, I got one in college, one going to go to college next year and one to go to college in another couple of years. So I, I, I there's no retiring for me. It's like, I got to right. figure out, <laughs> I have to figure out how to keep making money, you know? Right. So, well, tell me, Without going into great detail, of course, but tell me about the economics of archiving and restoration and how it compares to, to, to traditional studio work. It's much more difficult to mm. get money. Uh, it's different. It's like um, because you're not necessarily dealing with record companies anymore. As I said, I'm, I'm dealing with, you know, the nice people in Matador right now. Um, it's mostly dealing with artists and, and, or their estates. So one of my life's pleasures has been working for Nora Guthrie at the Woody Guthrie archive. I, I think I've been working now for almost 20 years and it, it's really been one of my life's pleasures. Nora is an extraordinary person who's taught me so much. And I learned so much from her about how to treat archival material properly and how to treat legacy artists properly. So it's, it's a different process. You know, I, I, it's not equitable in the same way. You know what I mean? Right. It doesn't scale the same way as selling a week or a day or a month of studio time. Cause you, you're kind of limited if it's just you, to just, you know, because you've got to concentrate on one project at a time, right? Well, Shane and I have been dividing up. Because of COVID, we've been doing shifts. He's amazing. He gets there really super early. And I'm a total old rock dude. And I like to get up late. So we do, we do have this time where we overlap. 
mm-hmm. but there are two separate rooms filled with different gear. So he's able to work like one room is about digital preservation because we've been doing a whole group of, of, uh, of digital assets. And then the other room is a place to do the analog assets, right? So I can be in one room working on the analog stuff and he can be in the other room preserving the digital content. And are you mostly dealing in, you know, I know that if you're dealing with old stuff, you're dealing with old formats and generally mono stuff, but in the modern stuff that you, that you deal with, are you dealing mostly with stereo mixes or are there multi-tracks involved? No, it's mostly multis. It's mostly two inch, one inch, 16 track, two inch, 24 track, one inch, eight track. Did it. I just finished a, about six months ago, a really large project for Sony, uh, which was all one inch eight track. Um, I have an ATR 104. It's one that's, I had to sell mine from the magic shop when I closed, but one of the first things I got after six months in Brooklyn was, was another ATR. And then I, uh, John French hooked me up with some amazing heads. And so I got a, an ATR 104 with three track head, four track head quarter inch head, quarter track head. I have to tell you, I use all the stuff. And then, you know, in terms of the digital stuff, we're doing a lot of ADAT stuff, a lot of D88 stuff. Can I say something on the record? Absolutely. Those formats suck. <laughs> I, got, I got a shelf full of tapes up here. So listen, tape, analog tape is amazingly resilient. Mm-hmm. I've worked on stuff that you can't believe it's going to play that has been underwater for a week and a half and we can triage it and we can play it. But these fucking D88 tapes and ADAT tapes, they're just awful. And we have spent a real lot of time developing techniques to try to play them. Mm -hmm. And we're having, you know, some good results. Um, But I, I would, um, encourage your your listeners if they have any of these things really go to ebay try to find one try to find a machine that works and and fucking digitize these things because they're just awful they really are i did a record with a guy where like we recorded i think it was 16 or 24 tracks worth of of stuff big you know full band and then uh i I left that project while we waited for the next stage to, to happen. And I came back and he said, uh, Oh, by the way, I sent the machines out for alignment and repair. And I, I had like, I could feel my body doing strange things. Cause I was like, you did. Oh, that could be a problem. Put the tapes in nothing red. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like a video. So it's the round video head, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you start messing with the alignment of that, you're never going to track the D88 tape again. It's why people have so many problems with that tapes, right? And thanks to a young smart kid named Peter Alexic, uh, we have a different way of doing DAT tapes in Mars. That's the by the name of my the name of my new business. It's called Mars, which is the magic shop archiving and restoration studios. So at Mars, we have a different way of doing DATs, um, which I'm not going to tell you, but it's it, <laughs> it I, how we do it, but we do it in a different way and it really works. 
So I've been doing, oh my goodness, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dats for people. Um, because dat tapes have the same problem, right? Where if you try, if you've recorded on a Panasonic and then you try to play it on your so a Sony, mm -hmm. right? You're going to have tracking issues, right? So, but these DADA tapes and the ADAT tapes, oh man, I, I get it. I mean, I get it. I get why we had to do it because it was a low cost alternative, but I really encourage people to preserve them. And you know, what's funny too, is that I've got, I've been in the position to recall Pro Tools sessions from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and they all work every time. Maybe the plugins aren't there, but the audio is there and it's all in the right spot. Right. That's great. Um, you know, I always felt like Avid, you know, something that Avid could make is a, a backwards compatible platform so that if I get Sound Designer 2 files, which I get, and I get somebody who, you know, did Pro Tools 2 or Pro Tools 3, I literally have to source machines and, and software in order to play these things. I, I, I always hope and dream that one day Avid would make a fully backwards compatible platform. You know, I guess there's no money in it, but they could probably sell it to libraries I know that they'd sell a bunch to the Library of Congress, I'm sure. we. I had this conversation. In fact, I think it was, you know, Rado uh, helps run uh, our organization here, the Bay Area Audio Nerds. And we were all out the other night. And I think we had this conversation where the newest version of Pro Tools can pull up those those sessions that have Sound Designer 2 files and flip, it, flip them over into WAV files. I, I haven't verified that, but I will. Wow. So this new one that just came out a couple of weeks ago? Well, I think actually the version before that, but oh, okay. I'll, I'll dig into it and I'll find out for you. But yeah, it, that, it's a, I did some stuff for uh, John Cunaberti and Joe Satriani where I had, I had to, you know, pull up a version of Pro Tools 10 to read the Sound Designer 2 files, save them. Huge pain in the ass. Right. Wow. Thanks for the tip. I'll, yeah, I appreciate that. I'll definitely look into that. No guarantees I'm, that's accurate, but I, that's what I'm I've heard. I'm so tired of buying those blue Macs, you know, those blue towers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and the with with the ultra wide SCSI card and the yeah, I, I think I got six of them now. I think at least. Oh my god! Wow. So yeah, I'm forever going to eBay and buying those blue Macs. <laughs> well, uh, we're about out of time, and I, I I could I could keep going for hours, but. Um, this new this business of restoration do you feel like it's been uh, a savior well i think it's a, a fascinating thing i think it it's uh the timing is right for it because the record companies are making enormous amounts of money from streaming mm -hmm. so what did they make two billion dollars last quarter universal i think or was it Sony that made $1.999 in the quarter? So they're making enormous amounts of money from streaming. And a large part of that is from catalog and legacy material. Oh, yeah. There was a big uh, uh, email kerfuffle about someone posted something of it being like 70% 
of the money that they're making is from catalog material. And then the next day it went down to 67%. And then the third day it went down to 62%. I don't, I don't know what the actual percentage of it is, mm -hmm. but there's a large percentage of the money that they're making is from archival and catalog material. That's really why you're seeing them buy all of these assets, right? That's why that's such a hot part of the music industry, right? Is the accumulation and the the purchase of artists' archives and and publishing rights is because of the amount of money that they're making from streaming. So down at the bottom of that food chain, all the way down in the basement. Right. There are men and women who are working on the digitization and the organization of this legacy material. Hmm. And so if there's any bump in, in this world, I would think that that's probably what it's from. Interesting. And one, you know, just we were talking about formats a minute ago with the digital modular digital multitracks the beauty of the ATR machine is that ability to swap heads and get to different tape widths, for, you know, and, and, and setups. So that's a, that machine is a great machine for that reason. Yeah. It's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, what do I have? So I have a, uh, you know, a studio that's just one inch, a track, one inch, 16 track, a studio that just two inch, 24 track, Got the ATR, had a nice quarter-inch studer. Yeah, there. You know, the upkeep is hard, mm -hmm. but there. You know, at this point, they're all in in good shape. Well, for the listener, I will put a link in the show notes to a number of things, including your website, which is magicshopny.com. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. And uh, and there's an email there, and if anybody wants to. <clears throat> ask me any preservation questions i'm more than happy to answer them. yeah or hire you to do some preservation that's always a good thing well steve i've really enjoyed our conversation i appreciate you uh spending a little extra time with me uh than uh i'm sure you originally anticipated but it's great to hear all of this for a number of reasons but i appreciate your time thank you yeah this was fun and i appreciate you asking me on for a chat you be well and hopefully i'll come out and visit you at some point. If, yeah, you could see, uh, I can meet you in person. You could see Rado. You could see Jessica. Yeah, I have good friends from uh, the Bronx, uh, boyhood friends who, who live in the Bay Area. Come so, on out. We'll, we'll all get together. I got to come out and I'll hang. What's the name of you? The Audio Nerds? Yeah, Rado started the Bay Area Audio Nerds group and it's it's great. We just we meet at a bar once a month and just check in with everybody and see how everybody's doing and talk shop. Awesome. Sounds like fun. Well, thank you. And you take care. All right. Cheers. Our friends over at Cali audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk reflections from the drivers, to the desk to your ears are accounted for 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Steve Rosenthal here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. What a story. What a journey he has had. Really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Hey, uh, remember, want to make a guest suggestion? Just go on over to the guest suggestion form I have conveniently placed for you at workingclassaudio.com. Head on over there, fill it out. We'll consider your guest. Maybe we'll have him on. Maybe we won't. I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. But uh, that's it. I want to thank my crew. That, of course, includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Yep, you can reach out to me there. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.